We've already said thanks via video, but I'd like to add my own word of gratitude to the many of you who have served in this nation's armed forces. We owe you a debt of gratitude. We do not take you for granted. Um, speaking for myself and our family, we pray for you daily, that God will bless you and protect you and your loved ones who you leave behind uh, when you're sent across the country or around the world to serve. We're just, um, we're just very grateful. Across America, churches are also noting on this uh, Veterans Day weekend uh, something that is loving and faithful and sacrificial. And really the whole country, I'm not sure exactly when or where this started, but it's, it's a good idea. More and more people are putting their mind on the important topic of adoption. The Bible has so many ways of explaining to us the love of God. It uses a lot of different concepts and word pictures. One of them, and one of the most intimate, is that God brings us into His family by adoption. Because adoption is a love that chooses specifically to bring a, bring a child, bring another person into a family and give them all the blessings and all the rights and the protections that belonging to that family confers. So if you're comfortable, not everybody's ready to tell their story or identify themselves in, in, in adoption, but if your life has in some way been touched by adoption and you don't mind doing this, could I simply ask you to stand? If your life has been touched by adoption and you're comfortable doing so, could I invite you to stand, please? Well, there you go. And a group even bigger in last night's service and a crowd that was smaller. Thank you. You may be seated. Father, thank you for those in our church and elsewhere that are serving as foster parents, are adopting. Thank you, Lord, for the children of adoption. All that that implies, all that it, that it requires, the way it changes a life, I pray that you'd give everyone anywhere in that relationship, Lord, of adoptive love, that you would give them grace and strength and that you would raise up, Lord, from our number more and more people who would be advocates, champions, those who would love, Lord, children uh, who are, have been separated for whatever reason from their biological parents. Thank you for being a father who adopts. Thank you that you call us your own children. We love you for that, and we want in this way and in every way, Lord, to show your love to the world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a lifelong bad habit, but I developed it as a kid. I carried it into my parenthood. I played whatever sport was in season when I was growing up. And I had the terrible habit before we competed, before we actually had a game, against opponents, I had the terrible habit of measuring the opposition during warm-ups. Anybody else do that? Because you're on the same field or court or swimming pool or whatever it is, and they march in, and there they are with uniforms that look stupid. At least that was my mindset, right? Those guys look stupid. I wonder how good they are. And then I'd watch them warm up, and I'd say, oh, it's going to be a good day. That guy's pretty chunky and looks pretty slow. That guy looks pretty skinny and looks pretty frail. Football was my favorite sport. And this is in Mexico, and man, I could write a book. Um, a lot of the referees hadn't played the game. There was a very loose grasp on the rules. 
So there was no telling what might happen, and in my case, what you could get away with, right, uh, in the face of official ignorance on the part of the officials. So I'd measure the opposition, and then about half the time be terribly surprised once the game was on. That chunky kid arrived at the ball with a real sense of purpose, I found out. <laughs> that skinny kid didn't need to be sturdy because he was so fast. None of us, certainly me, we couldn't catch him. Just had, I carried that into parenting as well. When one of my sons was playing water polo, we had a big tournament, and the, the other team walked out and, you know, this water polo, wow, what a sport, okay? This other team comes out in the little black Speedos with a hot pink bird logo on the rear end of the Speedo. It looked like the Twitter bird, if you can imagine. Hot pink, and the name of the team is Aqua Pigeons. Like, ah, it's going to be a good day. Because our club logo had a piranha in it. Now we're talking, right? Piranha versus whatever an aqua pigeon is. I didn't know birds could swim, but here we are. The piranhas are going to meet the aqua pigeons, and I kind of gave my kid a wink, like, yeah, buddy, enjoy. Man, the aqua pigeons were good. They came down from the Bay Area, I think, with the express purpose of humbling me, who made the mistake of measuring them in warm-ups and was terribly surprised. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells us a parable that has everything to do with making premature judgments. Look with me, please, in Luke chapter 8. And I'll start reading with verse 1. By this time in Luke's gospel, as we've worked slowly through it for nearly a year now, Jesus has met all kinds of people and had all kinds of different reactions. Simon the Pharisee has sat in cold-hearted, silent judgment of Jesus and the people who draw close to him while a sinful woman literally washes his feet with her tears. A Roman... A Roman soldier has had an astonishing amount of faith by telling Jesus, if you want anyone to be healed, they will. You don't even have to come. You just have to, you just have to want it, and it's going to happen. And all kinds of people are around Jesus. You pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. In other words, the king is on earth, and he is telling them the kingdom of God is now very close. God is doing something utterly different. The Savior is actually walking the earth. And it says the 12 were with him, and also some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So you have a group of men who have walked away from their livelihoods to be with Jesus, a very diverse group of women, some attached to the Roman government in a way, a household manager for Herod, that's not an unimportant job, and a woman apparently who had been demon-possessed, they're all going along with Jesus, and they had some means. They're supporting the preaching of Jesus and His disciples in this extraordinary time, this short, intense ministry of Jesus Christ. And of course, with everything that Jesus is doing, all kinds of people are coming. Look at verse 4, when a great crowd was gathering, 
And people from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, and now Jesus is going to do something he's famous for. He's going to tell them a fictitious story with a profound spiritual truth in the middle of it. And what he's going to do through this parable is help them understand all of these different reactions that he's been receiving. And it's in the Gospel of Luke so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can understand something vitally important. Every time you hear from God through his written word, Scripture, or his living word, Jesus Christ, Every time that happens, you stand at an important crossroads and you're going to respond in some way. Jesus has been going through cities, towns, and villages, getting a reaction, and now he's going to tell them a parable explaining what's happening, and everyone is in this parable somewhere. Look at verse 4. When a great crowd was gathering... And people from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, a sower, in other words, a, a planter, a farmer, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded, remember this, a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that's 2,000 years ago, different language, different culture, different idioms. But what Jesus says at the end is striking, so we need to understand it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In your own words, what do you think Jesus is saying? Listen. Pay attention. Garner paraphrase. Catch this if you can. I've just told you something very important. I want you to consider whether you can understand, whether you can hear what I'm telling you. And the disciples, they're not there yet. Look at verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, this is a very serious verse. And if you're seeking Jesus, if you have questions about Jesus, even if you've been following Jesus for years, I want you to really take what, is, what he says next seriously. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Wow. Wow. See, one of the misconceptions about the parables of Jesus is he said them with these childlike stories to make sure that everybody understood. Jesus actually says something different and more serious. As he's going to go on to explain, the parables of Jesus and the Word of God itself elicits, creates a reaction in people when they hear it. And the most important thing you can do in your life, literally, no pastoral hyperbole, the most important thing you can do when you hear the Word of God is pay attention and welcome it. Because as Jesus is going to explain, not everybody does. He's giving us the parable of the soils. 
He's answering this question, what does the Word of God do? Listen to Jesus explain. Verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the Word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, what's it saying? They fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for those, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What does the Word of God do? Two simple things. First and most importantly, it reveals the heart. Anytime you have an encounter with the Word of God, there will be nothing wrong with the Word. That's the foundational truth in this parable. The sower went out, and in the ancient days, he likely would have had a large sack slung to one side of his body, and he would be reaching in and throwing the seed by the fistfuls. No machines to help back then. The parable, is, the parable has a pictures a man planting the seed, and Jesus says, verse 11, the seed is the Word of God. The Word of God is true. It can penetrate and change hearts. It can take from apparently dead soil a beautiful, living, blessing, nutritious harvest. It can change... A, it can change reality altogether, but it doesn't always receive a good hearing. And the seed, the Word of God, reveals the human heart. And Jesus tells us, and these are as timely as the day He spoke them, He tells us about the obstacles that people are encountering as they listen to His Word. There are all kinds of things. If you'll zero in, please, in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. We'll see these different reactions in the human heart. First, he says, verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. That means that one of the obstacles to following Jesus is what I call spiritual theft. The Word of God has come close. The light has come on. Someone who is far from God has been interested. He's been told the truth. She's on the verge of believing, but along with that, there's a spiritual battle that takes place, and Jesus, who very much believed in the presence of Satan and the reality and the work of the devil, says that word is snatched away, and that person does not believe and is not saved. On a personal level, I can't tell you how many times, including recently, I have shared the gospel with someone who wanted to hear it, who was asking the eternal questions. And I walk away from many of those meetings so encouraged because there's light in their eyes, there's spiritual curiosity, they're wondering where they can get a Bible or how they can better read the Bible. They're asking the kinds of questions that no one in the secular culture is asking, and that's one of the reasons we are dying and eroding before our very eyes, because we continue to look for material solutions in a spiritual world. And they're interested, and they give me their cell phone number, and they say, we'll talk again on Tuesday. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've never heard from that person again. I don't know exactly what's happened, but Jesus gives me a good idea. The word has arrived in a hu- has arrived close to a human heart that needs to hear it, and it is in that moment snatched away. What's that mean for us? If we're serious about being disciples of Jesus and making disciples for Jesus, we really have to step up our game. If there is spiritual warfare in the world, spiritual passivity on our part will never win. If we're quiet and passive and waiting for things to happen, and what that looks like spiritually is prayerlessness, nothing indicates to me more that my spiritual defenses are down than when my prayer life evaporates. Pastor John Piper has said it well. He said, a lot of Christians think of prayer as a household intercom to summon God to bring more drinks down into the den. And what it really is, is a radio in time of war to call for support. That's what prayer is. Well, that's one of the obstacles. Theft, and that's one of the things we should be praying against, but there's more. Jesus says there's a different kind of reaction in verse 13. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and then something happens, it says, and in a time of testing, they fall away. What's happening here? There's also persecution and adversity that comes along with following Jesus. And these people who have received the word gladly, that have excited their friends and family, that have thrilled the church, that invited them, They have a brief time of great growth and great joy, and it all looks very good until testing comes, until there begins to be personal opposition from others, until it begins to have a real practical, I can feel it on a Monday morning cost to follow Jesus, then Jesus says those people having no root fall away. John the Apostle, Jesus' closest friend among the twelve, reflected on this years later, these kinds of people, and he said in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. I've seen that too. I've seen people just It's like a quick burning fire. They're so excited. They're so zealous. They can't do enough. They can't read enough. They can't get to enough groups. They can't stop talking about the change that is made, and then the test comes. And Jesus, who was continually telling people to count the cost before they followed him, to be like a wise builder who was going to sit down and determine if he had enough money to finish, to be like a wise general, to think about how many it would take to wage war successfully before he entered into conflict. Jesus, who knows all the spiritual perils that come against people who are hearing the word, warns that there will be some who have no root, who receive the word with joy and then fall away. And the last obstacle is found in verse 14, and it's as timely and up-to-date as breaking news in Orange County. Look at verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, 
They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. See, the Word is good, and it has found reasonably good soil, and it is starting to bear fruit, but along with the work that God is doing in changing that life, all kinds of other stuff is growing up along with it. These are those who are not subject to spiritual theft, who don't necessarily face adversity or persecution. These are people who heard Jesus but had the life die before it really got started through worldly pressures and pleasures. And these are all real, and three different kinds of people can be victimized in each of these ways, but of all the things that Jesus mentioned, the one that I see having a field day in the harvest that Jesus is trying to bring in by putting out the good word is this last one. We're so concerned about things that won't matter one second after we're dead. It's worse than that. We're wildly concerned with things that won't matter tomorrow. Our attention span has shortened almost to give us all a sort of culturally induced learning disability where we can't focus, we can't pay attention, we can't ask an important question that matters for years, much less for eternity. It was the same in the first century. I think in the 21st century, it's just, it's accelerated. There are so many cares, there are so many concerns, the need for riches, the desire for riches is such a powerful antidote to the good Word of God that will find, Jesus says, good soil and in due time bring a beautiful harvest, but for many people they will be choked out, their life will be choked out, and the heart will be revealed. Finally, Jesus comes to the good soil, and this is the second thing that the Word of God does. It always reveals the human heart, and in some, it produces a new and fruitful life. Look at verse 15. It says, as for those in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And this is what I mean by saying that appearances can be deceiving. Anybody ever been? I mean, we live in Orange County. We're surrounded by concrete. We have to very deliberately plant green things and water them to have any beauty in our lives. Anybody ever been to the farm? Been to the wheat fields of Kansas, for instance? If you're driving through that country before the harvest comes in, it doesn't look like much. It's just dirt. And an Orange County developer would say, what a terrible waste. We could put 15,000 high-density units right over there. We'll put in a pool. We'll charge extra if they have a dog. We're going to make money. But it's not a waste. It looks most of the time like not much is happening. But if you've had the misfortune, as I did as a child, to be taken out to the family farm in a time of either planting or harvest, you know how much work is involved. And there comes a time, given enough time, if the seed and the soil was right, that a spectacular harvest comes in. And if you stand in those wheat fields, it's not unlike being in the ocean, except everything is golden and shimmers white. 
when the seed is fully mature and the head of that wheat. Jesus says, there are some who are listening to me, and the good seed of the Word is finding an honest, open heart. And it may not look like much in the beginning, verse 15, but that honest and good heart, they are going to be those who bear fruit with patience. Because there's going to be adversity, there are going to be things that test that seed and test the soil. But for those who have received my good word, the eternal word, the eternal life I'm telling you about, it really is going to produce a new and fruitful life. And this is really where the rubber meets the road and where you personally need to do a little business with Jesus. Because he says, my word always does two things. It always reveals the condition of the human heart, and for some of you who welcome it and receive it, it's going to change your life. You're going to have an entirely new and fruitful life. What sort of things? Well, Paul talked about that. Let me give you one, for instance, of the kind of life that Jesus actually produces where His good, true, faithful Word is met with an open heart. Paul spoke in Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read this together. Paul spoke of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is the kind of change, the kind of production that the Spirit of God creates in a human being. It's not a plan of moral self-improvement. It's not a to-do list of things to check off to make sure that you're a better person. No, it's fruit. It's something that is naturally produced by the Spirit, by God Himself. Read it with me. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How's it going out there? Given time, over time, and through testing, Jesus says, this is the kind of life that my Word will produce. An important distinction. You'll notice it says the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let's go back to our grammar days. Is that singular or plural? Singular, isn't it? That's an important distinction. Because what Paul means is this is the kind of life that the Spirit produces. This is what God does. He doesn't use plural as if it were something that you could choose. So you could say, well, I'm going to be... Oh boy, let's see, these are all, these are all difficult. Um, I'm going to have love, but I don't really do patience. I've had people tell me, patience isn't my thing. I was told after the service yesterday, a teenager leaned over to his mother toward the end of the sermon and said, Mom, you've got them all except patience. Say, this is a beautiful verse because it's an invitation into a life. See, the secular world and our increasingly secular culture will tell you that Christianity is one among many sets of values. And if it works for you, good for you. Jesus says something entirely different. He's saying, I am actually speaking to you the very Word of God. I'm not bringing you a moral code. I'm bringing you life. I'm bringing you truth and authority from the one who made you. This is the Word of God. This is God speaking. 
And not all of you will be able to listen. Not all of you will care and respond well. Every one of you will have your heart revealed. And some of you who can actually hear what I'm saying, you're going to have your life changed completely. And what God is going to produce, God says through Paul, is a life that is growing, never perfect, always growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the whole program. It's not a cafeteria. It's not take two of this and one of the other. No, this is the kind of disciple that Jesus makes. This is the kind of life that God produces. Jesus himself said in John 15, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so, what's the last phrase? Prove to be my disciples. The proof is in the harvest. And if I could get really serious, and I'm not aiming at any specific individual, We've been moving through Luke for months. So this isn't one of those sermons, and I'm not that kind of pastor who gets worked up about something and writes a sermon just to talk to that guy sitting over there. <laughs> Don't ever worry about that, okay? If there's something that I think that needs to be addressed to an individual, here's a concept. Talk to that individual, not to the whole crowd, right? But here's where it really gets serious for any crowd of people who are listening to Jesus as you are because this is His Word. I'm just explaining it. You're actually listening to what Jesus said. I'm doing my best to give you a faithful, clear explanation of what He said. That's all that's happening. There are many who are deceived in their relationship to Jesus. And what we've created, particularly in the United States, and we've spread it say this as a missionary, we spread it all across the world, is given people a false assurance of faith and a false assurance of salvation because they remember a time they prayed a prayer, signed a card, or walked down a church aisle. And they will say, oh yes, I remember I was 12. But the Word of God would tell them over and over again, not only here, but especially here, if you really want to know what sort of person you are and where you stand in relationship to Jesus, please consider the harvest. If you continually look out in Kansas and continue to see wheat, those aren't orange trees. And yet, with this false assurance, which is all part of the spiritual battle, which is all part of the deception, there are many that will hearken back to a single moment in time where they prayed or said or sang or talked to somebody, and they're pinning their whole eternity on that moment, and they haven't stopped to consider that in the years following, nothing has changed. There has been no growth. There has been no fruit. There is nothing in their love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that would honestly distinguish them from anybody who hadn't had that sort of an experience. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus warned in the Gospel of Matthew, and Paul echoed those words to a group of pastors in the book of Acts, that some would come to the flock who were on the inside ravenous, dangerous wolves, but they would come dressed in sheep's clothing. And Jesus gave this simple instruction, by their fruits you will know them. And that takes time, and that takes testing. 
and listen to Paul address a church filled with fighting, filled with selfishness. He said to them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Make sure. You know what you've heard. I've heard, Paul says, what you profess. Make sure you're actually in the faith because this isn't simply checking a box. This is an invitation and a production of a whole new life. And Jesus says there will always be fruit coming with it. What am I trying to tell you? That a true disciple of Jesus is in the process of becoming and behaving more like Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're not talking about demographic categories of Christian versus Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or secular. We're not talking about adopting a worldview or a set of political values. Many of those things will come with genuinely following Jesus. But Jesus says, if you are my disciple, it's the simplest thing in the world. Someone who actually is a disciple of Jesus is in the process. He's not finished He's not satisfied. He may be happy and grateful, but he will never be content or complacent. He is in the process of becoming more like Jesus himself. So, by that standard, could I just be really clear and honest and loving with you, as loving as I can in a public setting, and ask you to take Jesus seriously and consider whether you really are his disciple? What I'm asking you is, how's the harvest? Not how were you raised and what kind of church did your parents drag you to of once upon a time, but how's the harvest? If you had to do an honest evaluation of the kind of reception that you have given to the Word of Jesus, do you find it being choked out or do you find it patiently bearing fruit, patiently prospering? Please understand, because if you misunderstand this, I've done you a great harm. I'm not talking to you about trying harder. A lot of Christian preaching boils down to moralism with the thin coating of Jesus. Where you tell people, act better, think better thoughts, do better deeds, and oh, by the way, give Jesus the credit. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking you something much harder have you genuinely placed your faith in Him personally and given up on yourself? And in doing that, do you now see the proof of a life that is markedly different and producing something different than what you experienced before you trusted Him? That's the mark of discipleship. The mark of a disciple will bear fruit. He will endure and struggle and maybe like Peter, deny he will disappoint himself and his Lord, but a genuine disciple is greed for sin, returns to Jesus, and patiently over time with all these tests and trials and obstacles bears fruit. A disciple is one, again, who is in the process of becoming and behaving more like Jesus. And nothing I could ever ask you matters more than that. And if you're not certain what I'm going to do, what I did last, starting last night as I promised the Saturday congregation, is that I'm going to pray that you are not at peace, that you are not settled, that you don't have spiritual rest until you make sure of your salvation. 
If you hang it all on an experience and that experience turns out to be shallow, you didn't really believe, you'll be subject to one of the things that my pastor used to joke about in a deadly serious joke. He always said there'll be two surprises in heaven. Those who are there and those who are not. Jesus died to bring a great crowd in, to bring a great harvest of changed lives and welcomes the sons and the daughters of God by adoption into God's family so that you will be saved. If you're not absolutely certain, I'm praying that you'll make certain right now. If you were one of these who, like many, need a process, I remember that struggle. I gave you my testimony last week. I remember the struggle and the fight and the process, but by God's grace, I have assurance, as you can have, that Jesus has made a difference, that He is in charge, and I've seen the change He has operated in my life and in the life of thousands and thousands of people. If you're not certain, give up on this demographic box checking of, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I go to church. Please don't cite your habits. Think on the harvest and have eternal life. Let's pray together, shall we? Could I ask you all just to bow your head for a moment, to have a moment of privacy and reflection to yourself? Listen, however long you've been coming to this church, however long you've been coming to any church, I'm asking you directly, are you certain? Are you sure? Based on the evidence, based on the fruit, do you have assurance and peace from God Himself? that you are showing up as a disciple of Jesus because you are, over time, bearing much fruit. Don't thin slice it. Believers and unbelievers alike can have good days and bad days. I'm talking to you about the harvest, about what the faith you've professed in Jesus has been producing. Does it look like the kind of fruit that Scripture describes? If not, could I invite you to call out to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, if I've ever been half-hearted with you, I am wholehearted now. I want to be sure. I'm asking you to save me. Forgive me for my sin. I see my sin. I'm sorry for it. I cannot save myself. Please save me. Take charge. Guide me. Give me life and make me your true disciple. Jesus will not reject such a person. The words are not magical. That's just one simple expression of a humble heart that says, here's a heart open, Lord, to your truth. Change me. Start producing that harvest in me. If you have questions, or if you've decided this morning, I ask one simple favor. Take the card in your bulletin, fill it out, either with your decision or your question, or you want to enter into a process where you can figure these things out, where you can lay out your doubts and get answers. We may not have them all immediately, but Jesus does. Believe me, there's nothing you can ask Him that will stump Him, disappointment, or upset Him. He will answer, and He will be your Savior if only you trust Him. Lord Jesus, as people think about what to do with you, the truth of that parable is going to be relived again in this service and the one that follows. There's a battle. Even now, Lord, some are close to having the seed stolen away. 
Others are tempted to believe, but shallowly and with no root. All of us, Lord, are subject to being, having our life impeded, our full fruit choked out by the cares and the pressures of this world. I pray, Jesus, that you would draw close to those who need you and you would save everyone, Lord, everyone here who needs you, that you would not find any resistant stony hearts, that people would be open and honest with you and through their honesty and their trust be saved. For those who have questions, Lord, who are not yet, yet ready this morning to believe, give them the courage and the humility to say so so that we can begin a conversation about you and they may meet you. Not change religions or do anything shallow or human like that, but meet you and through their knowledge of you be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name.